Chapter 40 of Cripps the Carrier by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 40 Let Me Out. At about the same hour of that Sunday afternoon, Miss Patch sat alone in her little cottage, stubbornly reasoning with herself. She was growing rather weary of her task, which had been a long and heavy one, a great deal longer and a great deal heavier than she could ever have dreamed at the outset. It was for the sake of the kingdom of heaven that she had laid her hand to this plough, and now it seemed likely to be a plough, in the sense in which that word is lightly used by undergraduates. For public opinion Miss Patch cared nothing. Her view of the world was purely and precisely scriptural, according to her own interpretation. Any line of action was especially recommended to her by the certainty that the world would condemn it. She had led a life of misery with her father, the gambling captain, the man of fashion, who made slaves of his children, and being already of a narrow gauge of mind, she laid herself out for theology, not true religion, but enough to please her and make her sure that she was always right. Grace, being truly of a docile nature, and most unsuspicious as her father was before her, had implicit faith in the truth and honor of her good Aunt Patch. She looked upon her as so devoutly pious and grandly upright that any idea of fraud on her part seemed almost profanity. She believed the good lady to be acting wholly under the guidance of her own father, and as his representative, in which there seemed nothing either strained or strange, especially as the squire had once placed his daughter in the charge of Miss Patch for a course of scriptural and historical reading, and the first misgiving in the poor girl's mind arose from what Christopher Sharp had told her of pining and lonely weariness weeks and weeks she had endured under the firm belief that her father was compelled to have it so, and in the hope of the glorious time when he should come to take her home. For all that, she could see good reason, according to what she had been told, but she could see no reason whatever why Miss Patch should have told her falsehoods as to the place in which they lived. Having been challenged upon this subject by her indignant niece, the elderly lady now sat thinking. She was as firmly convinced as ever that in all she had done, she had acted strictly and purely for the glory of the Lord, Grace, a great heiress and a silly girl, was at the point of being snapped up by the papists and made one of them, whereupon both an immortal soul and one hundred fifty thousand pounds would be devoted to perdition. Of this Miss Patch had been thoroughly assured before she would give her help at all. It was well known that Russell Overshoot loved and would win Grace Oglander, and that Russell's dearest friend was Hardenow of Brazenose, and that Hardenow was the deepest Jesuit ever admitted to holy orders in the Church of England. Therefore, at heart, Russell Overshoot must be a papist of the deepest dye, and anybody with half an eye could see through that conspiracy. To defeat such a scheme, Miss Patch would have promised to spend six months in a hollow tree, but promise and performance are a very different pair of shoes, and the lady, though fed like a woodpecker on the choicest of all sylvan food, even now in four months' time, was tiring of her martyrdom. Her cottage in a wood had long been growing loathsome to her. The deeds of the Lord she admired greatly, 
when they were homicidal, but of his large and kindly works she had no congenial liking. The fluttering spread of leaves that hang like tips of empty gloves one day, and after one kind night lift forth like the hand of a baby with his mind made up, and the change of color all under the trees, whether the ground be grassed or naked, also the delicate sliding of the light in and out of the peeling wands of brushwood, and flat upon the lichened stones, and even in the coarsest hour of the day, which generally is from one to two p.m., when all mankind are dining, the quiet spread and receptive width of growth that has to catch its light. For none of these pretty little scenes did Miss Patch care so much as half a patch, and she was sure that they gave her rheumatism. She was longing to be in London now, to sit beneath the noble eloquence of preachers and orators most divine, who spent the prime of the year in reviling their friends and extolling the negro, whereas for weeks and weeks in this ungodly forest she had no chance of receiving any spiritual ministration, save once when Tychus, on a Sunday morning, had driven her in his pig-cart to a little Wesleyan chapel some three miles off at the end of a hamlet. Here people stared at her so, and asked such questions that she durst not go again and indeed the pleasure was not worth the risk, for the shoemaker who preached was a thoroughly quiet, ungifted man, without an evil word for anybody. Not only these large regrets and yearnings were thronging upon this lady now, but also a small, although feminine, feeling of desire for support and guidance. Strong-minded as she was, and conscious of her lofty mission, from time to time she grew faint-hearted in that dreary solitude, without the encouragement of the cool male will. This for some days she had not received, and she knew not why it had failed her. Though the afternoon was so bright with temptation, the woods so rich with wonders, Miss Patch preferred to nurse her knee by the little fire in the parlor. She had always hated to be out of doors, and to see too much of things which did not bear out her opinions, and to lose that clear knowledge of the will of the Lord, which is lost by those who study him. She loved to discern in everything that happened to her liking the grand and infinite potentiality of an all-wise providence. And, if a little thing went amiss, she laid all the blame to the badly principled interference of the devil. While she was deeply pondering thus and warming her little teapot, in ran the beautiful and lively girl who had long been growing too much for her, it was not only the brighter spring of young life in this Gracie, and her pretty ways, and nice surprises, and pleasure in pleasing others, and graceful turns of cookery, but also her pure fount of loving-kindness which, having no other way out, was obliged to steal around Miss Patch herself, although she had been ill-content with the only explanation she could get about her dwelling-place, to wit, that in these roadless parts distance was very much a matter of conjecture. Grace had no suspicion yet of any plot or conspiracy. All things had been planned so deeply and carried out so cleverly that any such suspicion would have been contrary to her nature. She had lost, by some unaccountable carelessness, both the note from her father, which she had received at her Aunt Joan's, and also his more important letter delivered to her when she met the chase, 
by her kind and pious Auntie Patch. In the first note, delivered by a little boy, she had simply been called forth to meet her father in the lane, and to walk home with him, as he pleased to speak with her by herself. She was not to wait to pack any of her clothes, as they would be sent for afterwards, and he hoped that her Aunt Joan would excuse his deferring their little dinner for the present. But when, instead of meeting him, she found the chaise with Miss Patch inside it and was invited to step in, a real letter was handed to her, the whole of which in the waning light, the day being very brown and gloomy, she could not easily make out. But she learned enough to see that she was to place herself under the care of Miss Patch and not expect to see her father for at least some weeks to come. Her hair, for the reason therein given, was to be cut off at once, and not even kept in the carriage, and the poor girl submitted with a few low sobs to the loss of her beautiful, bright tresses. But what were they? How small and selfish of her to think twice of them in the presence of the heavy trouble threatening her dear father, and the anguish of losing him for so long, without even so much as a kiss of farewell. For after his first brief scrawl, he had found that, by starting at once, he could catch at Falmouth the packet for Demerara, and thus save a fortnight in getting to his estates, which were threatened with ruin. If these should be lost to him, Gracie knew, as he had no secrets from her, that half of his income would go at one sweep, which, for his own sake, would matter little, but for the sake of his darling, must, if possible, be prevented. He had no time now for another word, except that he had left his house at Beckley, just as it stood, to be let by his agent, to cover the expenses of his long voyage, and to get him out of two difficulties. He could not have left his dear child there alone, and, if he could, he would not have done so, for a most virulent fever had long been hanging about, and had now broken out hard by, and Dr. Splinters had strictly ordered, the moment he heard of it, that the dear child's hair should be cropped to her head, and burned or cast away for nothing harbored infection as hair did. With a few words of blessing and comfort and love and a promise to write from Demerara, and a fatherly hope that for his sake she would submit to Miss Patch in all things and make the most of this opportunity for completing her course of scriptural and historical reading, the dear old father had signed himself her loving papa, W.O. Grace would have been a very different girl from her own frank self if she had even dreamed of suspecting the genuineness of this letter. It was in her father's crabbed and upright and queerly jointed hand, from the first line to the last. For a moment, indeed, she had been surprised that he called himself her papa because he did not like the word, and thought it a piece of the foreign stuff which had better continue to be foreign. But there stood the word, and in his hurry how could he stop such trifles? This letter had been lost. Poor Grace, he could not imagine how, because she had taken such great care of it, and had slept with it under her pillow always. Nevertheless, it had disappeared, leaving tears of self-reproach in her own downcast eyes as she searched the wood for it, and this made her careful tenfold of the two letters she had received from Georgetown. But now, as she came with her Sunday hat on and her pretty woodstock gloves, 
and her neat brown skirt looped up for challenge of briars and furs and dog rose, and best of all with the bloom on her cheeks and the sparkle in her clear soft eyes and the May sun making glory in her rolling clouds of new-grown hair, and better than best, that smile of the heart filling the whole young face with light. She really looked as if it would be impossible to say no to her. Auntie, she began, it is quite an age since you have let me have a walk at all. One would think that I wanted to run away with that very smart young gentleman, who possesses and exhibits that extremely lustrous riding whip, if he has only got a horse to match it. What is the name, dear auntie, of that inestimable historical jewel that somebody stole out of somebody's eye? Grace, will you never remember anything? It is now called the Orloff, or Shafras gem, and is set in a Russian scepter, then that must be the name of this gentleman's horse to enable it to go with such a whip. Dear Auntie, now even that whip will not tempt me or move me to run away from you. Only do please to allow me forth. This horrid little garden is so shaded and sour that even a daisy cannot live. But in the wood I find all things lovely. May I have a run for only half an hour? "'Upon one condition,' replied Miss Patch, "'that if you see any one, you shall come back at once and let me know. "'What, even the fat man with the flapped hat and smock on? "'I never go out without seeing him, though he never seems to see me at all. "'He must be very short-sighted.' "'Oh, no, my dear, never mind that poor man. "'He looks after the cattle or something. "'What I mean is—' any young gentleman who ought to be at home on the Sabbath day, and wrestle with your natural frivolity, my dear, that no worldly thoughts may assault and hurt the soul upon this holy day. I will do my best, Auntie, but how can I help thinking of the things I see? Miss Patch, having less than any faith in unregenerate human nature, feared that she might have been wrong in allowing even this limited freedom to grace. The truth of it was that, without fresh guidance from a mind far deeper than her own, she could not see the right thing to do in the new complication arising. The interviews between Kit, Sharp, and Grace were the very thing desired, and surely must have led to something good, which ought to be carefully followed up, and yet, if she met him again, she would be quite sure to go on with her questions and Kit, being purely outside of the plot, would reply with the most inconvenient truth. Miss Patch had written, as promptly as could be, to ask what she ought to do in this crisis. But no answer had come through the trusty Tickus, nor any well-provided visit. The Christian-minded lady could not tell at all what to make of it. Then, calling to mind the sacredness of the day, she dismissed the subject, and sternly rebuked deaf Marjorie Daw for not keeping the kettle boiling. End of chapter 40